You are listening to the Health Disparities Podcast from the Movement is Life Caucus, conversations about health disparities with people who are working to eliminate them. I am Dr. Randall Morgan. I'm an orthopedic surgeon in Sarasota, Florida, and I am a member of the Movement is Life Steering Committee. I presently serve as the executive director of the W. Montague Cobb NMA Health Institute, which is based in Washington, D.C. Dr. Ron Bailey is Assistant Dean of Education at the Charles R. Drew School of Medicine and Chief Medical Officer of the Kedron Psychiatric Hospital. A graduate of Morehouse College, he was the 113th President of the National Medical Association. He is a member of the American Psychiatric Association Board of Trustees and a board member, past board chair, and current chair of the W. Montague Cobb NMA Health Institute. Welcome to the Health Disparities Podcast, Dr. Bailey. Good morning. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you and all of the experiences that you have had in your career uh, that have been focused upon health disparities. We are going to start with some quick answer questions. Uh, then we can explore some specifics in more depth. Our first question is why is this an important conference right now? We're speaking of the Healing Hate Conference in uh, Charlottesville, Virginia. The Healing Hate Conference um, this month of January of 2020 uh, cannot occur at a better time, I think, in our society, in our community, and in healthcare. Uh, it addresses the idea that because of health disparities uh, that uh, continue to exist, many individuals are at risk of poor outcomes, and very often there are actions that we could take as healthcare professionals uh, to eliminate them uh, and alleviate them. The Healing Hate Conference particularly has addressed this concern that over many decades, actually, over a century, the areas of discontent between uh, persons of varying backgrounds have led to conflict, be it based on discriminatory bias, implicit or otherwise, uh, be it based on uh, race or racial ethnicity uh, concerns or racism, uh, gender uh, inequality, uh, discrimination against persons based on uh, their, their choice of uh, where they pray or who they choose to uh, live their lives with. Uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, we see these uh, concerns um, raising their head again and making it more difficult, I think, for those of us in healthcare uh, to make for a better circumstance for a person's life. So Healing Hate, I think, has a, a timely uh, entity to address these issues um, forthright. Dr. Bailey, there are obvious uh, effects of gun violence, particularly when there are homicides or suicides. But there is a ripple effect that occurs in our community uh, that affects uh, many of our citizens. Um, and this is something that we at Moving This Life uh, would like to be able to uh, address as well because this is a part of the total uh, human experience that we are addressing in Moving This Life. So could you perhaps discuss a few of the ripple effects that you see that occur in communities? Certainly. Uh, I think that there are several. Uh, first and foremost, uh, as a one does have to be a psychiatrist to appreciate that uh, stress and or anxiety uh, is harmful uh, on our health. And the idea 
that uh, with ongoing stress uh, leading all the way up to, you know, the big concern of post-traumatic stress, for example, uh, individuals have worse health outcomes, more hypertension, more diabetes, more worsened cancer outcomes, uh, more um, pulmonary uh, difficulties, more strokes. Uh, a recent um, autopsy of someone who had a very stressful life who died of a, a violent act at age 30, uh, in the late 30s, uh, doing an autopsy, it pointed out that the, the, the person had a heart of a, a late 60s uh, age person. So 20 years more of aging on their heart, although violence was actually uh, causing them to end their life earlier on. There are many persons who are still alive who've not been a direct victim of gun violence or other forms of violence who also have these uh, long-term difficulties because of the stress that it actually employs. I think a second issue is the conflict or difficulty on families. Uh, the conflict of risk of violence has a substantially adverse impact on, on families. From more um, familiar discord, leading up to probably including uh, you know, divorce and uh, children being uh, split from both their parents, I think that violence often has the ability as well to cause a great deal of uh, adolescent misbehavior. Uh, in psychiatry, we often see individuals who, if they come from a violent background, whether it was in their home or in their neighborhood, if they actually knew about it, and you may know some of the, about it from the media or from in entities that are far away from you, you may bring that violence, that d dynamic and personal violence, uh, if you're an adolescent, into your own life experience at school, how you interact with peers. A third piece that I think very often is getting a lot more attention now is the, the conflict between society members and law enforcement. Uh, one can cut on uh, their, their local media, their YouTube, whatever, and see these increasingly violent conflicts uh, with law enforcement. The law enforcement officer stops someone and they want to ask regular questions, and the persons are challenging law enforcement, and sometimes law enforcement reacts appropriately, at times they overreact. All, I think, also in part, part of the so-called ripple effect, that this ongoing dynamic violence in one area, which may lead to 20,000 homicides and 40,000 suicides every year, but there are millions of people who are impacted adversely because of it. So we all are affected, not just those persons who live in one part of town or in one community or who are direct recipient of a family that lost somebody to death due to gun violence. In terms of health disparities and health equity, which trends are you most concerned about at this time? Well, there are several, uh, but I think as a practicing psychiatrist, uh, I'm always very focused on the issue of psychiatric um, uh, disabilities uh, and mental health uh, impairment. Uh, clearly, uh, there's lack of funding appropriately from government and private resources for individuals who have brain disorders as compared to um, so-called medical disorders, and that impairment very often uh, leads to health disparities and adverse outcomes. Early mortality or death and unnecessary or unwarranted morbidity are worsened health concerns for individuals who probably could manage or treat much better. Or one key issue for me has always been that if you have a primary psychiatric illness and a diagnosis before the age of 25, you on average can expect a shortened length of life by over a decade and a half. So our patients live to about their mid-60s, whereas most individuals in America now live closer to the age of 80. Uh, persons are actually dying early because of so-called medical concerns, hypertension and cardiovascular illness and pneumonia and asthma and stroke. But the psychiatric comorbidity, when it occurs early in their life, very often is a predictive factor of worse outcomes and early mortality. Those are issues that we in psychiatry should be speaking about directly. And that particular issue, is this something that is recent? Or is this something that has been known for a long time? 
We've known this for um, what I call a long time, but it's unfortunate that in psychiatry we've not done as good a job as we should have and we should do better going forward, making these points known, I think, uh, liberally and generally, I think, to the entire American populace. All too often, even throughout my 30-year career, I finished Mayor School University of Texas in 1990, so I've been out 30 years now, we've recognized that many tend to think that you don't concern yourself with the psychiatric issues until uh, it's very late in the game. You've done the full medical workup and you can't find any answer, then you call for a psychiatric consult, our psychiatric issues are put on a back burner, persons refuse to take their medications. Uh, I often comment about the data that implies that of all the areas of medicine, psychiatry is the area where persons are most likely to go to a physician, receive a diagnosis, be prescribed care, and never get the prescription filled the first time. So the stigma against mental illness or psychiatric disorders is real, and it often adversely impairs individuals from doing the things that they need to do to move toward uh, better oral outcomes and uh, impaired uh, clinical circumstances. We should speak about that much more deliberately in psychiatry. I think it is of interest that early on in my medical training uh, at Howard University, uh, psychiatry was a part of our education program uh, even earlier than I thought it was necessary. Mm -hmm. And so retrospectively, I can understand why it was introduced so early in the curriculum. And I'm wondering if that still uh, takes place in the medical schools today. Well, I think that uh, you pointed out correctly. Howard University School of Medicine was ahead of the curve then and may still be now in addressing psychiatric issues early on. Many medical schools increasingly now uh, get students into the clinic earlier. You don't wait until you finish your second year and pass step two before you finally put on a white coat and engage in clinical activity. Uh, many start early. Uh, when I was in medical school, we started probably during the second year. Some start right from day one, getting some clinical experience or clinical exposure. But you're right. Very often, it does not include uh, good exposure to psychiatric themes, patients, and potential diagnosis, especially as it pertains to comorbidities, areas of persons have both a medical problem and a psychiatric problem. If you think about them both collectively from the inception of the diagnostic process, you tend to get uh, outcomes that are enhanced, and persons, I think, who appreciate the value of managing those concerns dually uh, right from the inception of care. I clearly think that some schools have been uh, more uh, aggressive at this. Uh, increasingly now, there's a wealth of new med schools around the country, University of Houston and University of California Riverside and, uh, and some others, I think one in Illinois, that are more focused on social determinants of health. They bring more of a psychological bent into the early considerations regarding diagnosis and care. Uh, that new group of med schools probably are the ones that are increasingly at the forefront now of addressing these type of psychiatric concerns earlier in the um, provision of, of medical education. And that's something that should be promoted with the traditional medical schools as well, because when these disease processes are compartmentalized, it's very difficult to understand how to, to solve them. And as you mentioned, the social determinants of health has become a major issue today in terms of understanding health disparities. Uh, but I didn't think about the connection between psychiatric health and uh, social determinants. You make a very good point. I was actually at one of those uh, trainings for, um, this is a physician uh, administration at, at Harvard um, in Boston, January of um, 18, and a uh, speaker that's speaking about the fact that in countries around the world, uh, most of whom have universal health care, by the way, uh, that I think we all in healthcare should probably support. 
But in countries that uh, focus on social determinants, uh, much more so put much more proactive resources into prevention uh, early in the process of a person's health care, uh, they, they simply have better outcomes. Uh, they have uh, the same length of life that we have, but less morbidity uh, during the earlier periods. So we have in America um, to take a step back, look at how we actually process the activity of health care, and begin to make changes that are appropriate for current times. Uh, it was very clear that in um, the turn of the century, 1900, 120 years ago, persons average, you know, ending their life at about age 49. By a uh, century later, by year 2000, that average is at, at almost age 75. So we increased by about 50% the length of life with the strategies we employed during that, that century, 1900 to 2000. We got antibiotics and we developed the use of you know, clean water and sewage and we made sure people, people would wash their hands. Even in surgery, you had to use aseptic technique, those kind of things. But the next century will be different. Between 2000 and, and, and 2000 and 2100, we probably have to have different strategies to find ways to improve the quality and the length of people's lives. Uh, and I think this issue of focus on social determinants of health, addressing more concerns regarding prevention, a huge premium on primary care, uh, early access. Uh, those, are, those are the strategies that are likely to work. That's why there's just uh, anathema to me, and I would hope all doctors, that we live in a country that's been debating for a decade whether uh, there should be ac free access to care for everyone. Because if you have health care for everyone, then persons are much more likely early on to go for prevention and decrease the need for many of these Herculean efforts later when preventative concerns have been addressed. And we may get back to some of these points uh, in your other questions. In terms of health disparities and health equity, what potential initiatives and remedies are you most optimistic about? Well, there are several. Uh, clearly, um, one thing that I'm uh, very involved in now is the issue of uh, preventing violence. I'm a psychiatrist. I've been doing that 30 years. So issues regarding violence and, and interpersonal dynamic violence uh, has always been an aspect of my career where the persons are potentially risk of violence to themselves, suicidal thoughts or ideation, and we hospitalize them involuntarily against their will, or whether there's a dynamic violence against others, in a person, if you will, are all issues where I think violence comes into play. But really over the course of the last, I'd say, five years of my career, I've been much more focused on the issue of firearm violence or gun violence. I'm happy to say that uh, my second book came out on that uh, in 2018. We'll be discussing that, I think, in the program here at Healing 8 um, uh, in Charlottesville, Virginia, tomorrow, Friday, uh, January 31st, 2020. That book addressed, I think, these five or six key themes of violence prevention that we should all talk about. One, we should acknowledge that the gun itself uh, can be a problem, not the only problem, but it is relevant to this discussion about gun violence. So I would disagree with those uh, in uh, academics or not who would argue, well, don't worry about the gun, it's just individual. We can throw the key away and put them in jail or uh, have billboard prisons and have more laws and three strikes you out. All those kinds of strategies clearly have not worked in decreasing dynamic violence in America during my, uh, during my career and yours. So we should have a different approach when it's much more likely to be proactive and effective. Secondly, it goes without saying, uh, most people are very much aware that the guns we have available in America now, there's just too many of them. 325 million Americans, 340 million guns, just, just too many probably more than any other so-called industrial country uh, in the world. I think second only to Yemen, the number of guns per uh, person uh, in the country. And the guns are too powerful. The so-called high magazine capacity. Everything is a machine gun. Even a small barrel pistol that you can carry concealed, not like a long uh, rifle, can fire off many, many, many rounds. And there's a reason for that. Uh, that's done 
to create maximum infliction of harm to people. Uh, you don't use those for hunting, and people who are really a good marksman already need to shoot one bullet one time. Uh, those who need to spray an area with multiple bullets are just giving, trying to, to, to harm large numbers of persons, and that's really not beneficial, I think, for our society. We should speak against it, especially in psychiatry. My third point, psychiatrists should also be the ones having this discussion because there are twice as many suicides in this country every year, closer to 40,000, than homicides, about 20,000, by guns. So if all the focus on homicide, prevention of such, many persons want to buy a gun to uh, protect themselves, and it's hard to disagree with that concept, but they, they should at least be aware and educated about the data that implies you're much more likely to have somebody come to your house and suicide with your gun, but often somebody who is known to you maybe even related to you, that for that gun to be used for defensive purposes, which is the reason why it was purchased. And my final point is I've been um, surprised to find out how much technology already currently exists that we just don't use in America, and I find that to be um, a missed opportunity and one that I think healthcare professionals should be speaking about very loudly. There's so-called biotechnology now, in January 2020, that would make guns uh, safer. Uh, a person would buy a gun, it would have to be programmed to only work for that individual based on their fingerprint, for example. So someone else could come into your gun and use it for nefarious purposes to harm themselves, uh, suicide, or in a domestic conflict to grab it and use it against someone else, even you, the owner. Uh, we should use that technology and we should use research to figure these things out. That's my final point in this regard is this so-called Dickey Amendment from 1996 or over two decades ago just really has to go. This idea that uh, data and evidence-based research is not to be done on a purpose that politicians would not want to know what the final answer would be, which is the uh, underpinning of the Dickey Amendment. It's been harmful, I think, on the issue of gun violence, but I think as a psychiatrist and as a, as a scientist, it's harmful on everything we do. You just simply cannot have any ent entity, politicians or otherwise, making decisions that are politically based that drive us to be precluded from conducting research in an empirically-based way that might find out different answers for solutions for society's problems. Uh, you've been very involved in the American Psychiatric Association. What is the association's position on the gun violence issue and the, and the importance of uh, psychiatrists in, in making a difference? Yeah, I've been on the board now uh, since uh, January of, um, I guess the election was in January, but I, I still began in uh, May of um, 2020. Um, 2019, excuse me, uh, and, and I'm very proud of the fact that the American Psychiatric Association, started in 1850, has always been against rampant, dynamic, and interpersonal uh, gun violence. Uh, it's had many uh, individual statements, um, position papers, and what have you. Um, what's unique, though, is that in June of 2016, three or four years ago, for the first time ever, the AMA, the American Medical Association, also came out with a position through their House of Delegates, their, their, their assembly body, uh, condemning the excessive use of gun violence uh, to harm Americans and indicating that many of the provisions that we should take uh, should be done with a public health perspective, which means there should be a um, wide-ranging, broad-based perspective of how we develop solutions to these concerns. I, entities like the Commissioner in uh, Health Disparities that the AMA jointly sponsored with the NMA and other groups uh, for over a decade uh, was very helpful because it brought advocacy groups to address these kinds of concerns together as a more or less a think tank and gave them a chance to kind of think, discuss, uh, share ideas, and find areas of common interest and common uh, direction to work toward addressing concerns regarding uh, interpersonal violence. Uh, that was helpful. Has there been 
an opportunity to talk about the rights of individuals in terms of the use of guns versus the health of the community uh, and the nation with regard to guns. Have there been any suggestions that this uh, American Psychiatric Association has given, or even AMA for that matter, to try to bridge the gap of communication uh, between the NRA, between those that are very strict with regard to the to the Constitution and Bill of Rights right. uh, in terms of gun rights uh, versus a healthy uh, environment? Absolutely. I think that uh, that really is the signature question and, and the best one that anyone could ask and have answered. I think there's a plethora of information, uh, education, awareness, uh, and direction for us to take uh, on just that very, very point. I think the problem remains currently in today's America that the minority of voices tend, unfortunately, to be the loudest and the most persuasive in the political arena, and they very often tend to have a positive effect uh, and are influential in tailoring the conversation for whether somebody has an either-or. Either you have gun rights and you should have an unfettered use and access to guns uh, versus uh, you have no rights and guns are taken away from you. And nothing um, could be more um, uh, disingenuous and untrue. Uh, I wrote a book, for example, uh, that I mentioned earlier, and nothing in my book speaks about taking anybody's gun away. It supports the Second Amendment, which means you can have access to a gun, and it points out that there are individual rights. You're 100% right. However, within that, there still have to be some restrictions. Just like we have restrictions on you can have a right to drive a car, but if you wreck too many times or if you get too many DWIs or if you have had a seizure, we take that right away. Same with guns. Some persons probably should not have a gun. It shouldn't be that everybody in America has to always have a gun in an unfair fashion. When we do have data, which we do, on who's most likely to hurt you with a gun, we don't use it. And that's what's unfortunate. So thank you for giving me this platform, because many Americans are not aware that we do know who's most likely to shoot you with a gun. The people who fall into three categories, and very often they're different than the ones that very often we make laws against. We make the laws against the mentally ill, and the data would argue that they are not substantially more likely to shoot you with a gun than anybody else. But the three groups that are, are A, those persons who've used one before, so a prior history of gun violence, albeit a substantial increased likelihood of future gun violence. B, those who have been a victim of violence. Those are persons who are much more likely to use a gun uh, against someone else. And third is those persons with substantial uh, SUD or substance use disorders, mainly alcoholism. So we don't say because you've had a DWI, we're going to take your gun away. But we'll say because you've been um, hospitalized, mentally ill, we'll take your gun away. Or we will say that um, I think all 50 states in the country have some rules or restrictions against having access to guns if you've had some degree of, of mental illness. So we really direct all of our efforts toward uh, gun control in the wrong direction. And that's the problem. And this issue still is a major um, talking point uh, for many in terms of uh, giving the reason why we have these gun issues. Oh, absolutely. Is that it's, uh, the people are all mentally ill, and so all we need to do is to find who the mentally ill people are uh, and, and uh, reduce those numbers, and then we will solve the gun violence problem. And, and, and you, the tenor of your question is correct. Uh, it, that idea, which some others propose and are proponents of, is remarkably and uh, over the reductionistic approach, you're right. It uh, misses the empirically based evidence that I just mentioned to you, that we know which three groups are most likely to use a gun 
against you. Those are the ones we should be more conscious of and, 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 and fearful of. The police will go to your house. There'll be a threat about conflict and violence. Uh, there'll be alcohol all over the place, and you have a history of DWIs, and they'll leave. And, 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 and there, there you are with the precipice of a, his, of, of a risk, a high risk of gun violence. But if they go to your house and they're called and you've had a history of mental illness, then they go to looking for guns. Take a, so we've been trained, our law enforcement otherwise, to think that the wrong group, those of a history of SPMI, or severe persistent mental illness like diagnosis, like schizophrenia, are the ones we should be afraid of. They would argue that those groups are probably about 4% more likely than the general population to use a gun. Um, in a commission for felony otherwise. So I can't say that, that the number is not higher, but it's minusculely higher. But the other three groups that I mentioned, those with alcohol or drugs, one, those who have been a victim of uh, gun violence, two, those who have been perpetrators of gun violence, three, they're 40 times more likely, 40% likely than others. So it's a tenfold risk. We must get the word out and change, move the needle, so to speak, on who we um, uh, address our efforts toward limiting gun violence. So just one more point uh, to uh, think about. I'm not sure it's going to clarify anything, but uh, there are two categories of citizens who are trained to use guns as a part of their livelihood or as a part of their of their task. One is the military, and the second are uh, law enforcement officers. So are they included in this? Those who have used a gun before. And in the largest numbers of individuals who would uh, use uh, guns? No, uh, the groups I think who are using guns legally would be excluded. Um, that data is really involving individuals who may be uh, free citizens who choose to have a gun in their own personal engagement. Okay. But it is a very good point because I think that individuals who actually are, are trained to use guns, uh, those of a military history, or those who are, are currently in law enforcement, are, are a key group to study. Uh, one study that I often like to share with groups is if you think about guns, it really is very instructive on who has a gun and why uh, access to guns I think is very important. Uh, the day would argue that law enforcement officers, persons who've been trained to use guns, and they were in the military before, they were trained twice, if you will, and those who actually practice, they go once a month, what have you, and, and practice shooting the marksmanship, they generally hit a stationary target at 50 feet four out of five times, a moving target at 50 feet, two out of five times. These are folks who are trained. So imagine persons who just kind of show up and they have a gun, because the second one said you could have one, who never train, who don't practice, who don't have a long prior history. Their marksmanship is remarkably poor. So people then tend to want to have more guns. Uh, the issue recently, there was an issue in a church and a lot of folks pulled their gun out or whatever. And very often they have not been trained to exhibit the uh, professional demeanor that's required when you have a gun on your person. You have to kind of take your own pulse, so to speak. You don't uh, act out. You don't act in an impulsive type way. If you just kind of grab a gun very quickly without thinking about all of the circumstances in a measured fashion, you're more likely to put other people at greater risk than to create any degree, I think, of safety. So we really are going in the wrong direction in America with the overproduction of guns, the allowance of many individuals to carry concealed weapons and have weapons on their person, the uh, unwillingness to execute a plan to encourage or require or force individuals who have a gun to be properly trained and have repetitive training over time, and to get the type of psychological, emotional uh, overview that's also required to recognize the high re relative degree of risk 
when there's a gun on your person. All those things that come into play um, collectively combined to create a higher risk of gun-related death in America that's unnecessary. So uh, we'll just summarize this discussion by asking you what is the one call to action you would like uh, listeners to hear? Uh, We'll say related to the health, or rather the hate conference, yeah. but also your involvement in the hate conference related to gun violence. Right. Well, I think that uh, I'm very appreciative of being uh, offered the opportunity to, uh, to speak. Uh, my comments, uh, you heard quite a few of those issues regarding the, uh, the gun violence book. Uh, I haven't mentioned yet that I have a third book coming out later this year, June of 2020, on domestic violence, or IPV, or interpersonal violence. And that book actually was developed as I was writing the earlier book, because so much about uh, gun violence pertains to the domestic violence um, uh, interplay. Uh, as one specific example I'll share with you, I was surprised to find out as I conducted the search that you're more likely, if you're a woman, to be physically harmed in your own home with somebody's hands or their fists, not with a gun, if there's a, a gun simply in the home. So simply having a gun in the home, and there's other data that supports this, raises the ante, so to speak, or increases the, the likelihood that persons will respond in a violent way. This is antithetical to psychiatry. We're the main people who should be speaking about and educating society about the need to de-escalate, to use words and not weapons, you know, um, interpersonal engagement and not physical violence to settle conflict and immediate the difficulties that I think people tend to experience. So we're just not doing a good enough job being effective, I think, in that regard. Those are all issues, I think, for this conference. My final point would be this conference also has a, a timely name. It's called Healing Hate because it additionally addresses where some of this, not all, but some of this conflict came from, and those are the racial and ethnically-based and religion-based you know, biases, implicit and otherwise, explicit, uh, that have existed throughout our society for many, many years and have existed uh, right here in Charlottesville going well back to, uh, before the event, but culminated for many in that event in August of 2017 when the uh, young woman was killed in the middle of the protesting around removing statutes. And the statutes represented, you know, white supremacy, uh, white male domination over others, over women, over people of different religions, Jews and Islamic and Christian, over individuals who are uh, ethnically different, who are African-American. All of that um, combines to uh, lead to the high level of risk that we all experience living in a society where with a high access to weapons, a high degree, I think, of antipathy and animosity towards persons who are different from us, uh, we think about racism, and then a, a lack of, I think, of a community response that's effective in a preventative type standpoint, it's a volatile cocktail and it can lead to death, as unfortunately did back then, and it has continued to do so in our society over many years. This conference aims to talk about that and address with some solutions moving forward. Well, one final question. Um, What would you think would be an appropriate response of a community such as Charlottesville, who has been uh, certainly the center of this problem, and we'll even state the state of Virginia for that matter, because it's become symbolic of this discourse. I think the four things that, that must happen from a psychiatric standpoint to heal a community and address a society's problem. First, the, from the people at the very top, they have to acknowledge and call mistreatment of others for the wrongful behavior that it really is. So it's astronomically harmful in a society in which we live for the leader of the free world 
to say publicly that there were people good on all sides, all good people on all sides. That just was blatantly untrue, and it supports the idea that some individuals who are doing wrongful behavior and exhibiting hate just based on what you represent, based on your race or your gender or your sexuality or your religion, that that's okay. That's not okay, and it cannot come from the mouths of leaders, the president or the governor or the mayor or the chief of police or whoever the leader may be. That's number one. Number two, your professional organizations like the NMA and the American Medical Association and American Psychiatric Association and the University of Virginia School of Law and School of Medicine must take a very active and dynamic approach. Having conferences like this are key. Those conferences should actually include all people, people from the community and people from all walks of life and persons who should have a voice and opportunity to speak their piece and share what a lot of the historical, historical pains continue to exist in their current life. Third, you must have some degree of psychological, if not physical, and financial reparations. And reparations, as I understand them, speak to the idea that you address something that was wrongful done in the past. Just like if I was a little kid and I uh, had, a, had, a, had a fight with a, with a neighbor, my father would make me apologize and do something nice for them. Something nice may not be uh, giving money. It may be um, providing quality schools and ensuring that the quality of the water is the same. Flint, Michigan, one part of town is bad water, another part of the state is good water. Ensure that there's fairness and equity in how people live their lives. Those are the kinds of reparations that I think are essential to repair many of the historical damages that our society continues to struggle with. And fourth, I'd say uh, there also has to be opportunities for joint interaction. Uh, I would encourage on Sunday morning, not just in Charlottesville, Virginia, where I'm sitting today, but in Los Angeles, where I live currently, and in Beaumont, Texas, where I'm from, that a church would say, on, on, on next Sunday, half of our people are going to go to a different church in a different part of town and worship separately. And that other church would do an even exchange. A school would say, one Friday a month, half of our school kids are going to go to a different school in a different part of town and study differently. Uh, another professional entity, whether it be a business or another enterprise, you can't continue to live your life regularly in separate, isolated uh, vignettes and not think that uh, biases and misunderstandings and stereotypical concerns aren't going to raise their head and at some point lead to adverse outcome, including harmful actions, including up to, uh, including violence. Those, I think, are the kinds of strategies that high-quality leaders would employ that I think may have some opportunity uh, for improvement of community relations and, at the end, for better health uh, and, and, and less disparities. Um, so this has been um, an excellent discussion. Uh, I'm going to recap a few of the points that, that you have made, but I'd like to just ask in summary whether you had any other point that you wanted to raise uh, with reference to your work in particular um, and also in reference to this, this conference before we try to summarize our discussion. Well, I thank you for the time. I think that um, education matters. Uh, Media-based education can be key. Uh, I'm a believer that if we uh, use these venues and uh, these vectors for uh, the positive value that they actually employ, uh, that'll be good for all of our goals, improved uh, health outcomes, I think, for all. I uh, thank you for letting me share a bit about um, what I do. Uh, I'm six months on the ground now at a new job in uh, inner city of Los Angeles, taking care of patients with the most severe forms of psychiatric illness uh, that exist. We call it SPMI, or Severe Persistent Mental Illness, uh, and, and I'm appreciating there now 
just like when I was in uh, North Carolina for four years and uh, Tennessee for seven years before that, uh, chronic mental illness um, spares no geographical boundaries. Uh, our patients uh, have the same need uh, where I'm now and compared to or where you are right now to be uh, cared for, appreciated, and respected as the human beings that they are. So one thing that I would end with is I think that the issue that we often call stigma against patients with mental illness uh, starts at home. Uh, every single individual has to make sure that they're mindful of what they do that worsen it. Uh, the telling, I think, of inappropriate jokes, the other mistreatment, the schools that want to admit somebody because they've had a, a diagnosis of psychiatric illness, the fact that persons are afraid to go see the psychiatrist, they don't want to be seen in their waiting room or take those medications, all those things hurt all of us, including you, not just that individual. So I think that uh, as we address education, the elimination of stigma and our role to play in it would be helpful. I think a few of the points that Dr. Bailey has, has raised that have been helpful for me and I'm sure will be helpful for the listeners as well is that psychiatric problems um, are underestimated in terms of their impact on communities <clears throat> and on our lives and on our abilities to um, interact with each other. Uh, also, psychiatric problems in general lack funding and at many different levels, uh, they are not addressed because of the lack of funding, the lack of education, and in many ways, patients not being willing to share their mental illness with uh, anyone, not take their medications, not follow through on the recommendations so that this is a condition that as physicians, we are not we're not solving all of, all of the problems related to psychiatric uh, illness. And then that psychiatric illness has a profound effect on violence. And as the studies are becoming more specific, it's, it's more clear that psychiatrists have to be uh, among the leaders in this nation to make a difference as we try to solve the problems with relationship to gun violence um, and to sort through the political challenges that uh, exist. Someone has to be able to have a rational uh, solution that's accepted by all parties, all geographic areas, all uh, political uh, parties within our nation. And we haven't gotten there yet, but you have given us uh, some very good points to uh, work on uh, to try to make that occur. Um, uh, the five points that you make about gun violence, I think, are key, that the gun is the problem and not the individual who might be mentally ill or angry on a particular day. Um, if they didn't have a gun, uh, they would not perpetrate gun violence. Uh, that. Uh, there are simply too many guns in America, and uh, we're going to have to um, try to change some of the uh, principles that were stated with the Dickey Am Amendment, revise that so that there will be a uh, real thrust of limiting the number of guns. And we can see in the state of Virginia even that there's a lot of consternation uh, about the new proposals from the legislature in terms of purchases of guns, who, how many guns you can have, and so forth. So we're still into that space. Um, third, that the guns are too powerful. 
the capacity uh, is more of a, a military type of uh, uh, instrument and not certainly uh, something that is needed for hunting uh, and not something that uh, should be exposed to uh, populations of uh, individuals who are going to nightclubs or going to th uh, other types of public events <clears throat> where they suddenly become um, um, victims. Um, I think the other part of this is the, uh, we didn't talk about, but we all are concerned <clears throat> about the school violence and, and the fact that students have, have, have become very much the advocate in terms of getting rid of guns and, and, and in their schools. And um, hopefully we will begin to listen. Uh, I'm not sure that we, we have as a nation to this point. Uh, fourth, that um, psychiatrists have identified the fact that there are twice as many suicides related to guns, almost 40,000 per year, as there are uh, homicides of 20,000 per year. Um, so we really need to do a better job in terms of identifying those that are, are likely to commit suicide, those that are depressed, those that have other types of life issues that come about. And finally, there are advances in technology that can make guns safer uh, if we are willing to, uh, to use those advances. Dr. Bailey, thank you so much for uh, participating in this uh, podcast and also bringing so many points to our attention in such a short period of time. Thanks for having uh, me. Thank you, uh, our listeners, for joining us on this episode of the Health Disparities Podcast. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and Spotify. And you can visit our website at www.movementislifecaucus.com for a full archive of all episodes. Goodbye until next time.